Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, good morning, Chapel family. Is everybody excited? It's Christmas Eve. We're Families gather, friends gather, there's food, uh, all kinds of stuff, and then there's presents. No, we, we love presents, don't we? we? We love to get presents. All of us do. And while hopefully we all appreciate every gift we receive, there are some gifts that we tend to value more and treasure more than others. Maybe it's because of what those gifts cost. Maybe it's because uh, some gifts are more fun. But very often it's because we treasure certain gifts because they are truly needed. Matter of fact, the more we appreciate something, typically it's related to how much we really need it. I mean, if we really need it a lot, we tend to value that gift. Today, on Christmas Eve, we prepare to celebrate what the angels said was good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. In fact, it's the greatest good newses of all time, born to us this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That was and is the greatest gift that God has given. He has given to us His Son. Incarnation. God became man. He became one of us. However, our appreciation and our excitement over that news goes only as far as and as deep as our understanding for why this is so incredibly important. So valuable what God did in sending Jesus. If we really don't understand and appreciate how necessary and important and valuable it is, then we really won't be that excited over the birth of Christ. The reality most of us get really excited about all the the beautiful and festive Christmas decorations. We get excited about giving and receiving presents. We get excited about family get-togethers and about Christmas dinners and special treats. And rightly so. I mean, what's not to love about all of those things? I often wonder... When it comes to Christmas, even for those of us who are believers in Christ, what really is our main focus at Christmas time? Is our main focus celebrating the season of Christmas or celebrating the Savior of Christmas? Which really do we value more? And I wonder that because if you're like me, I am far too often guilty of putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. 
I'm putting the emphasis on all the seasonal joys of Christmas rather than celebrating the Savior of Christmas. So to help us refocus a bit this morning, I'm going to take us to a rather unusual place for a Christmas message. I'm going to take us back to the book of Job. If you have a Bible or there's one in the pew, I welcome you to open your Bibles to the book of Job in chapter 9. And you may be thinking this morning, Job... Wait, I know that story. <laughs> Isn't that the story of the guy in the Old Testament? The guy that, that suffered tremendously? He suffered so terribly? Yep, that's the story. I'm going to go there this morning on Christmas Eve. You might wonder why. One remarkable thing about the book of Job Besides the remarkable story of Job and his friends, one remarkable thing is that many scholars regard this book of Job as the oldest book of the Bible, written long before any of the other books were written, before the prophets wrote, before David penned any of the Psalms. Even before Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there was Job. Most of us know the storyline. Job was a righteous, uh, respected, and a wealthy man. And yet he undergoes severe suffering. In the course of a single day, All ten of his children were dead. And all of his wealth was gone. A tremendously wealthy man. And yet in the course of a day, all of his family, all of his wealth is gone. And not too long after those losses probably just a few days or a week or so, Job loses his health. And we find Job very quickly in the story, literally sitting in the ash heap of what was his beautiful life, covered in painful sores and taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping these Boils these painful sores just trying to get some relief from the agony and the pain. And his wife, the family that was left to him, has these wonderful words of comfort. Why not just curse God, same thing, curse God and die? (laughs) Curse God so he'll just send a lightning bolt down and take you out. Thanks, dear. Then his friends show up. They show up to bring comfort to Job. But after a week of sitting there with him, they quickly turn on Job, and instead of being his comforters, they become his accusers, saying that surely you did something horrible, something absolutely astoundingly evil for you to be suffering like this. 
And Job says, I don't think so. No, nothing comes to mind. You say, Pastor, okay, great story. That'd be great on any other Sunday, but we're Christmas Eve. What does this have to do with Christmas at all? And in a way, nothing. Job doesn't know why any of this is happening. All he knows is that he's at the bottom of despair, the bottom of pain and brokenness. He has to look up to see down. (laughs) It's how low he is. He's in misery. His heart is broken. He's grief-stricken. He's misunderstood. He's maligned by his friends. And he feels at the same time abandoned by God and persecuted by God at the same time. Job wishes many times here in his words that he had never been born. I wish that the midwife had dropped me and ended my life right there. You know, we might imagine if we were in Job's condition, we'd have a lot of questions and complaints for God. Many of you all ever had any suffering, any difficulties, and you've had questions and complaints for God? (laughs) Well, we have. And Job does. And so here in chapter 9 of Job... He is spelling out his complaints to God about God. And in the process, Job says some absolutely remarkable things. And this is where we come to how this ties to Christmas. Because in the process of doing this, Job reveals why we desperately need Jesus. Job chapter 9, look at verse 32. Job says, For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. Job thinks he's getting a raw deal, that he's getting unjust treatment. And his complaint here is that it's not a fair fight. God is not a man, so I can't confront him. I can't go to him and talk to him face to face. Job, and we also discover that we want FaceTime with God. Job says, I wish God were a man so that I could look him in the eyes and I could talk to him man to man. Let's have it out. Come on. Man to man. Let's talk to know God, to confront Him, to communicate with Him. How interesting it is when the Apostle John begins his gospel, his account of the life of Christ, writing some words we actually read just a few moments ago in John 1.14. John writes, And the Word, and back up in verse 1 of John 1, we discover that the Word is God. And he says, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A few verses later, verse 18, John writes, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Matthew is saying the, the incarnation, God becomes man. As Matthew writes of the birth of Jesus, he recalls the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah who wrote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We sung that this morning. Emmanuel. God with us. God sent Jesus so that we might see and that we might know God. What is God like? And so that we might talk to him man to man because he is fully man and yet fully God. Certainly a great mystery, something that blows our minds when we just try to comprehend it. It's incomprehensible. And yet that is the wonder and the glory of Jesus. God became man so that we could know him. We could talk to him like you talk to a man. Back to Job chapter 9, verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. Job says, I'd like to take God to court. (laughs) You know, we have a marvelous system in our nation, in our judicial, it's enshrined in our justice system. Something which has been rare in human history It's the right to a fair trial and with a jury of our peers. Such a rare thing in history. The concept is that our peers will be more sympathetic to us. They will understand our plight. They will understand our situation better. And we can get a, more likely to get a fair trial from our peers than from some judge up there on a high exalted bench. Interesting. Job, like we, he wants fairness from God. Job says, I want to take God to court. I wish God were a man so that I could get a fair trial. You know, we all know that One day, the Bible says, every one of us will stand before the throne of God, there to be judged, there to give account. But the scripture says a very fascinating thing. You see, many, I imagine, at that time will want to say when they they might want to say when they're standing there before God, it's not fair. It's not a fair fight. I can't get a fair trial because God is not a man. 
And the scripture comes along and records something very fascinating that Jesus said, John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Isn't that fascinating? God the Father, in his marvelous wisdom and mercy, has delegated all judgment to Jesus. In the end, it will be Jesus, Jesus who is forever, will be fully God and man, fully human. He will be the judge of all men. God has provided Jesus to be, as it were, a jury of our peers who will ensure that none of us can claim I didn't get a fair trial. Isn't that marvelous? Job goes on to say in Job chapter 9, verse 33 and through 35, says there, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both and say, let him take away his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. What Job is saying, something that we also want, we want representation. We need representation before God. We need an advocate We don't go into court without a lawyer. One time in my life, I went into court. Uh, Janet and I went into court. We had had to to go there to face a a guy who had done us wrong, a businessman. We walked into the court, and the judge, it was small claims court, okay, which isn't a big deal unless you were poor like we were, And small claims is big claims, okay? And we go into this small claims court only to figure out that this businessman had been in there for a little bit of time with this judge, apparently with other cases. And apparently, this businessman and this judge were good friends. When we walked in, they were talking, I don't remember now, this was almost 50 years ago, they were talking golf or fishing or something, and we realized, we're in trouble. We need an advocate. (laughs) We need somebody on our side. Interesting. Job says, I wish there were an arbiter. Someone who might lay his hand on both God and me and stand between us. In other words, somebody who's connected to us both, who understands us both. And someone who can straighten out bent communications. (laughs) Because God may not be getting the message here that I need him to understand. He may not get how it is because he's not one of us. Someone who could tell God when I've reached the limit of what I can bear. Someone who can tell God, you need to be gentle on him. He's kind of fragile. (laughs) Someone who can relieve my terror of God, Job says. And I won't be afraid because I'll know that there's an advocate, somebody who's pleading my case, someone who's on my side representing me before God. 
See, we might wonder how is it possible that the all-powerful, eternal God enthroned in heaven, surrounded by myriads of angels in the glory of heaven, how can he possibly understand what it is to you and me to get a splinter in our finger? How can he possibly understand what it is to feel cold and hurt and pain and difficulty and struggle? How can he understand what it is to be afraid, alone, And without an arbiter or an advocate, it could be a terrifying thought to know that there is an absolutely holy and all-knowing and all-powerful God out there. Because every one of us deep down knows that we are not absolutely holy and pure. We are stained with sin and guilty. And there is no hiding from an all-knowing, all-present God. And there is no defense before him. And then, good news. God sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to be our arbiter, our advocate, the one to go between, to mediate between us and God. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. John writes in 1 John 1, I'm writing to you, little children. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. The book of Hebrews speaks of how Jesus right at this very moment is in heaven. There serving as our high priest as he writes there in Hebrews 7. Since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. He is there nonstop, always on the job, praying for you and me. Isn't that good news? <laughs> we have an advocate, an arbiter, someone who's on our side rather than on our case. Jesus is there, fully God and fully man. Awesome. Lastly, over in the next chapter, Job is continuing his complaints to God and about God. And in Job chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, Job questions God. He says, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as man's years? In other words, Job says, God, Can you possibly understand what it is to be human? Because I don't think you do. Therefore, you can't really understand who I am and what it's like. 
We need not only face time with God and, and we not only want fairness from God and we, we need representation before God, but we need to be understood by God. We really need and desire that God will understand what we feel, what we think, who we are. But how could that possibly be? God sent Jesus. And Jesus, as we've already read, he became one of us, as we read in John 1. He lived among us. He walked in our sandals. He walked the dust of earth. He felt our fears. He felt our hurts. He felt our frailties. And so the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says of Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. God really does know how you feel. He's felt our pains. He's felt our sufferings. He knows our fragility and our feebleness. Therefore, the book of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 18, now we can approach the throne of God boldly. We can come understanding that he understands us. And that now from him we can receive, it says, Mercy and grace to help in time of need. Isn't that interesting? In the very first book of the Bible that was written, Job has recognized that in our human experience, we have these great needs to know God and be known by him, to talk to him like a man, to know that God is fair, to have someone who can advocate on our behalf to God, to know that somehow God understands us. Job, he says here, he longed for God to supply those needs. (laughs) But they seemed so totally It seems so totally impossible to Job. It was just a a longing, a wish that he had. If only Job had known that God already knew the longing of the heart of man. And God already had a plan in place to do those very things. Job didn't understand that. But Job did understand something, something significant. Job did know that God had made a promise to meet another need that we have. In fact, the biggest need that we have, the biggest need of all. And Job was fully confident that somehow, somehow God was going to meet that need. 
while still in the midst of his pain, still in the midst of his suffering, still in the midst of his questions and fears and doubts, Job makes a marvelous statement. We have to turn over a little bit in the book to Job chapter 19. And there Job says this marvelous statement of confident hope. Job declares, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the last or in the latter days, I love some of the other translations say, He will stand upon the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God whom I will see for myself. My eyes shall behold him, not another person's eyes. My eyes shall behold him. My heart faints within me. You see, as we said at the very beginning, and if you know the story, Job was a good man. He was a man who stood out from the other people on earth, as being a good man. We know that he was unusually good and unusually right because God himself says of Job, God himself speaks and says this about Job, now there is none none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. You know, it would be simply awesome if you said that about me, but you'd be wrong. (laughs) If you said that about me, it's just you don't know me. (laughs) But when we say about another person, we say they're a good person. That's a pretty high compliment. But when God says that about somebody, when God says there's nobody on earth like him, That's a good guy. All right? Job is a good guy. But he wasn't a perfect man. A good man, but not a perfect man. And Job understood something. Job understood that he, like every one of us, needs a redeemer. We need a redeemer. Somebody who will rescue us from sin and its penalty. Someone who can deal with the curse of sin and death and decay. Who can provide us resurrection and eternal life. And someone who will enable us. Job was hoping for someone who would enable, enable him to be able to finally see God face to face. We all need that. And while Job couldn't understand the suffering and the mess that he was enduring, yet he declares confident hope in the goodness and the grace of God. Confident hope that God had a plan in place and the Redeemer was on the way. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He doesn't know when the Redeemer is coming, but he knows a Redeemer must be coming. Because he even says he probably won't see him until 
He's gone. He's dead. His flesh has rotted away. I like the King James. It says, the worms have destroyed this body. (laughs) It's gone. He says, yet in my flesh, I'll see him. I'll see God. Job believes that God has a plan, a redeemer, someone who can take away our sin and our guilt, someone who can, even if we die, can resurrect us and who will allow us us finally to have communication and relationship face-to-face with God. There's a redeemer on the way, and Job says, how my heart faints within me. In other words, what he's saying is how I long, how I yearn, how I just cannot wait to see the day when he comes. Job knew that God was at work, and indeed God was. A couple of millennia later, when Jesus Christ begins his ministry, he he says these words, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came as Redeemer to rescue us from sin. He was crucified on the cross, the holy, perfect one, fully God and yet fully man. There he paid the penalty of our sin. He was buried, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and one day... He's coming back. He's coming back and he will stand on this earth a second time. And in that day, Job will be standing there, resurrected from the dead. Standing right alongside of all of us and everyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Redeemer. And we will stand there with eyes this big marveling at the grace and wonder of a God who loved us so much. And he planned it all from the beginning of our human story. It was laid out from beginning to end. And it'll just be the beginning of eternity in relationship with and enjoyment of our marvelous creator. That, dear ones, is what should really rock our world and move us to celebrate Christmas with exceeding joy. God has given us the gift of Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, so that we might be redeemed, saved from sin, death, given everlasting life so that we might have a God who understands us, that we might have an advocate, that we might know God's merciful justice, 
that we might see him and know him face to face and enjoy him forever. All of these gifts are ours. And to anyone and to everyone who will receive and trust Jesus as their Savior. If you're here this morning or watching online, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, make this Christmas Eve that day. Don't wait a day longer. For we don't know, none of us know how long we will live in this life. And none of us know on what day it is Jesus will return. But we know he will. So tomorrow, well, start today. Enjoy all the holiday trimmings. They're good. What's, as I said earlier, what's not to love of those things? But may we most of all marvel and may we wonder and may we rejoice that Jesus has come to be our Savior. And then let's join with Job in confident hope and let's eagerly look for and long for the return of Jesus to earth when he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for... The fact that we have a day we've taken aside to celebrate the, the birth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. Well, Father, what a tragedy that so many people stop at the birth of Jesus and miss the rest of the story. And they don't really understand why he came. May we not get lost in all of the party and miss the reason for the party. May we, in these, in these next hours and days, may we give glory to Jesus, give glory to you. May we be filled with joy and may it spill out in our conversations and in our living in the days and weeks ahead as we tell others about Jesus and we wait for his return. In his name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.